I think it's it's the it's the urgency to do something. I think that's that's what I would like people to get out any talk that I give, any podcast that I record, is to do something. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very exciting episode this week. Today, we have guest Days Agaji joining us and our panelist, Ashling. We're here to talk about climate justice, climate activism, politics, and the intersection of that with race. I am very excited to have Days join us today. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This is this is about to be a very exciting conversation, and I'm so, so excited to delve in. Um, before we begin, let's give our audience a little bit of an introduction on who you are. So Days is a 20-year-old climate justice activist, political candidate, and student. She studies history and politics at Goldsmiths University of London. Days' advocacy for radical systemic change has seen her work with major NGOs, leading charities, and grassroots changemakers around the world. In 2019, she ran for election in the EU parliamentary elections, being the youngest candidate to do so, and she has strong ties with Extinction Rebellion. The main focus of Days' activism are regenerative cultures, intersectionality, environment, youth political engagement, and social change funding. Days has recently become a trustee at Belgrave Trust. So Days, this is so exciting. You are so young. You've made major headlines last year. Um, you were only 19, if I'm not mistaken, um, running as an independent to be a member of the European Parliament, all the while, you know, completing your final exams. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? When did your interest in climate activism begin? And what has made it your purpose or your calling? Yeah, it has been a crazy time, man. When I started uni, I never thought that this would be where, <laughs> where I'd be going. <laughs> I thought I would end up being a historian at the end of three years and go and work in academics. Um, but that doesn't seem like it's the plan now. Um, I would say, like, I think my story is particularly interesting because especially when it comes to intersectionality, I have lived in various different different ways even in 20 years like you know I've lived as a black person in a in a city area I've lived as a black person in the countryside I've lived as um, a poor person I've lived as a relatively like um, quite middle class person and I've experienced quite a lot within my life um, I grew up mostly uh, when I was much younger I would have been in Tottenham and that was actually where my first family home was it was a one-bedroom flat in the middle of uh, just off White Hart Lane and like my family wasn't wealthy at all we were actually struggling um and my mom started her restaurant which made us quite middle class and through there I was actually able to go to boarding school in Lincolnshire and that was when I really learned about nature and the love of nature and to really learn how to care for it um my house parents were brilliant at doing that they taught us how to, you know, take care of animals. We had chickens. We had like 15 chickens. <laughs> it was like the most chickens we had at once. Um, and also we we planted food and we really just learned about how to take care of the earth in so many different ways. So when I came to London um, to come back for college, I, I actually started getting quite ill. Um, I developed quite awful asthma and some skin conditions as well um, and no one could really pin what it was um, so I started searching myself and this is when I found out about the toxic levels of air pollution in London um, and in turn the climate crisis um, and I went 
years actually being really angry about the state of the world and the fact that we weren't told, we weren't consulted, we weren't told our futures that we were planning is is at risk. Um, and it was my first year of uni when I actually stumbled across Extinction Rebellion. My friend went to one of their protests and was telling me how amazing it was. Honestly, I didn't believe her because <laughs> I saw it as a bunch of crazy white people trying to get arrested. <laughs> um, yeah, but then she was like, let's just go to a meeting, you know, I just really want to get involved. So I said, why not, right? I had nothing to do. And that meeting, it really did change the course of my life, or at least what I was expecting it to be. Um, in that meeting, I found people who saw the urgency that I knew was needed to fight the climate crisis who left space for, for sorrow and sadness in fighting the grief of what we're experiencing right now, but also so much hope to make things better. Um, and I found a home within the this place I actually started, you know, like activism, I would say. <laughs> I even still find that term like, you know, to be an activist, what does that even mean? But um, But yeah, so that's kind of how I stumbled into XR. And through that, I ended up having amazing opportunities but also um, a lot of personal growth. I learned how to be myself which sounds really weird <laughs> but um, XR gives you such a place of growth and saying you know you are who you are and we welcome you in whatever state you're in and we're here to nurture you as a community to be there for you um, and I learned how to find my voice and how to speak up for myself um, and then when it came round to May where election was happening, it was quite funny because the election was not meant to happen because of Brexit, um, but it was. <laughs> um, and this is where it, we were thought you know, we were talking in the office and we thought it would be hilarious if I ran. Um, and I went, fuck yeah, that was my exact words. <laughs> and after that, um, I decided to run and I decided to make sure that this campaign was different. It wasn't just, you know, a politician giving fake promises and saying, oh, yeah, this is what we plan to do. It's saying, I want to work with communities in order to create the co-create the solutions that we need for ourselves and globally um, and talk about social justice and talk about how we can have solidarity with people in the global south who are on the front lines of climate change um, and also make sure that that election didn't just turn into a EU or not EU. Uh, it spoke about the climate and needed to speak about the climate. Um, so that's kind of my why I ran, and then from Amazing. there, I've done lots of little bits, <laughs> bits and bobs around. <laughs> That is honestly an amazing story. Sorry, Ashlyn, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say, it's like the anger that you were talking about. It's so real amongst young people and, you know, people who are seeing what's going on and they feel helpless. And I think it's really amazing that you stood up and said, no, I'm going to do something about this. Um, I want things to change. And yeah, I, I, I'm very like respectful of people who do that. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, you ran for MEP so young. Um, like, why, why did you like, what was, do you want to like, was it to change politics? Is that the idea? Um, it was more of like, it, 
I feel like my intentions, it was never really to win because obviously as a politics student, I knew statistically it was impossible. I would have needed at least 100,000 votes to even be in the game, um, let alone to win. <laughs> so it wasn't really to win, but it was to really make sure that we steer the conversation where it needs to be. And even that just a bit, you know, with XR, it's all about disruption. And I thought, how can we create disruption within the system? It is a 19-year-old student saying you know, I deserve a fucking future and this is how we're going to get there. Um, and it did really create uh, whirlwinds within um, the election period in London. That's so, yeah, that's amazing. Um, I was I was wondering, so recently XR was um, framed by UK officials as being an organised crime group. Um, can you give our listeners some background con- context on the Extinction Rebellion movement? Um, like what it stands for and how it gained traction, what the aims are, basically. So Extinction Rebellion is a grassroots protest movement that was originally, um, came out of a really small town in the West Country called Stroud. Um, And we have 10 co-founders who came together wanting real radical change around climate um, and created a a theory of change, which kind of took inspiration from lots of different social movements all across the world. Um, And within that, they started um, doing actions using this theory of change, using civil disobedience in a way that the 21st century really hasn't seen. And I joined before the rebellion, before the first rebellion. So I remember in January when I went for that first meeting, they were talking about how they're going to shut down central London. They want to protest like no protest has ever seen before. Um, And it was just so ambitious. And through that, um, we ended up all coming together. So many people put their brains together and said, how are we going to do this? And it, it happened. And we had April. And I think most people know April for the pink boat in Oxford Circus, which I think is true XR style and um, we we basically would like to get the government to start taking climate seriously and we have three demands the first one is to tell the truth it's to tell the truth about climate change about what's happening about the the prospects of the future if we do nothing the second is to act now with this truth that we're learning about we need to put things into infrastructure to really make change um we ask our intermediate demand for act now is to be carbon neutral by 2025 and this is particularly for 2025 as us in the uk we are part of the big emitters and we have really bad colonial history of using abusing the world and people so what we've decided to do is as us in the uk 2025 is our target because we need to do better and we need to be the ones who are taking ownership of the problem we created Um, and then the third demand is to bring forth people's and citizens assemblies Citizens' assemblies is a type of direct democracy which will teach people how to, you know, spot bias, how to absorb information and then be able to make decisions from that. Amazing. Des, you mentioned our colonial history. And obviously during, you know, this period of time, these the last few tumultuous months, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement, racial justice protests. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what you think you know, the intersection of climate changes, the climate crises with, um, you know, issues of race and racialized um, problems. It's it's all the same thing. And this is kind of, this is kind of brings into regenerative cultures. Um, so the idea of regenerative cultures is basically us creating ways 
to take care of ourselves, take care of our communities and take care of the planet. But it all really stems from a behaviour change. Um, and this kind of how it links to colonialism. We learned how to use and abuse people. And colonialism is just one example of this. There is many more, even modern examples like modern slavery and sexism and racism and daily experiences of this. Um, so we, in turn, did that to our communities and we, in turn, did that to the earth. But what's happened with the earth is the earth's actually gone, we're going to kick you out like bad tenants. Um, and the earth is fighting back against us. And this is why climate change has come about. Climate change is really only a byproduct of our social ills and the ways that we've learned how to behave. So if we actually correct these behaviours to really love each other and think about, you know, the effects on people and not bring harm to each other um, and in turn have duty to each other, we'll do the same thing to our communities, which will eradicate all of these uh, social ills that we're facing. And then we'll do the same thing to the earth as well. I was going to say, I think you're so right to like bring environmental justice with social justice. I think the two are inseparable. They come hand in hand. And it is, yeah, like you say, grounding ourselves back in community and, and becoming like helpful towards one another, you know? It's, it's sim it seems so simple. Exactly. I wish it was though. Because <laughs> like, I use colonialism because I feel like, at least for me, I know it, it might be like a bias because obviously my family does come from Nigeria um, and my, my homeland was colonised and it was like, I, I use that as an example because it really does show how far this has gone back. Climate change and racism is not something that just popped up in the 21st century. It is literal hundreds of years of oppression that we're trying to change um, and we need to change fast. And I think that kind of gives the context of how long this behaviour that we've been doing and kind of getting away with um, has been going on. And now we can't get away with it because it will destroy the way that we live within our society and on this earth. Do you think enough people have sort of made that connection between, you know, colonialism, issues of oppression and climate change? Or do you think there's still this, you know, this overall rhetoric that climate change is, is more, you know, a middle class or an upper middle class issue to sort of worry about and, and people should be concerned with, you know, their day to day or the, the racial injustices that are occurring every single day? Yeah, I don't think most people have cottoned on to it. Um, I think that there does need to be like a real grassroots effort to educate on the connectivity of all these issues. I do think that there is like, I, I really dislike the idea of going, oh yeah, because you're black. That, like this is a white people thing to do. This is a middle class thing to do because it's not. It's mm -hmm. for all of us. And even so, it's actually the ethnic minorities, the working class people, the marginalised communities who are going to be the ones who feel climate change the worst and first. So this is all of our issues. And I do think that by saying, oh yeah, it's a white middle class thing, uh, go over there and sort out your own, like what's going on tomorrow is a way to kind Kind of blindsight us into walk into an into a future that we don't want and I do think that we need to start talking about environmentalism not just as a carbon issue but as like a societal issue in the same way that we talk about social justice mm -hmm. that that's a great point you make and you know obviously during covid we've had a number of lockdowns we've had less activity in general and I hope you know the environment is thanking us I want to talk about you personally how has this period of time you know, impacted you in terms of your activism, your climate work, and how has it sort of changed your perspective or maybe kept your perspective 
the same. Yeah, I feel like this period has been particularly difficult for everyone, <laughs> you know, and in, for me in turn as well. Um, I came into lockdown very much with the, oh God, now that I can't go on the street and protest, so what do I do? <laughs> you know, because that is, that is the medium that I use as like, you know, my activism is on the ground, it is meeting people, it is building community, it is going out in the streets and demanding for more. But with, you know, we always talk about telling the truth and respecting science. We had to respect this science and respect this crisis that's happening. Um, so it was quite difficult. And also I even had some personal losses throughout COVID as well of family members and family friends who were affected. But I think what COVID has really brought to the forefront is when I say the system is fucked, everyone can see it now. Before I would talk about, oh, how all marginalised groups are, you know, are being treated differently, are being affected differently by things like climate change and health issues. Um, and people didn't really get it till COVID hit. And the people who were dying more frequently um, and at larger scales were ethnic minorities. They were people from the LGBTQ plus community. They were disabled people, the elderly, the people who were ignored in the society. And when people started to realise that, I feel that there was a more of a push for radical change. And the fact that coming out of this pandemic, we don't need to revert back to what was there before. Um, and I think that's the true thing. That's almost like the beauty and the sadness of what's happened, um, is that even with Black Lives Matter, is a really good example of that. People have the time to not be distracted by the, oh, what's happening every day, that quick nine to five, pick up the kids, go to the bank, <laughs> and that rush lifestyle that all of us lead, and had time to sit down and look at what was happening around the world, and look at what was happening to people we care for. Um, and people started reading, people started educating themselves, and then people said, we're not taking this. Um, and that was the important part. And we saw, like, imagine if, if you know, at the beginning of the year, we say all these countries across the world are going to come together because someone has died unjustly. We would have never thought that could happen, but it did. And it's really just started all types of activism, not just in racial justice issues, but in class issues, in climate. It's it's quite, you know, although like sadness obviously has had to happen, there is hope within this. I think it's amazing how COVID was almost like a pause on capitalism, something that we thought that, you know, could never happen. And, you know, we saw fish returning to Venice and we saw, you know, the skies clearing over, over China. And it was suddenly like people stopped and thought we could actually live a different life. There is another possibility. And the people who were being affected were the people who were being exploited. And I think, yeah, COVID was such a lens to look at society and go like, things are wrong, things need to change. And who is being affected? You know, the people on the zero hour contracts, the people who weren't getting furlough and couldn't, you know, sit at home and work from home, they were the people losing out. And it's it's amazing how the rhetoric was, you know, about the well-being of the economy rather than the well-being of people. And that's a very interesting point. I, I sort of want to ask you, Days, do you, what do you think about, you know, capitalism and climate change and climate activism and how do those things balance each other out? Do you think you can achieve tangible change within our, you know, our highly capitalistic society and our highly capitalistic framework? 
Personally, I don't think so. We It's had time to adapt and adjust to this crisis, and it has not. Um, I think capitalism, as you were saying before, Ashling, it, it does prioritise business over people. It prioritises business over the earth. And that is incompatible to the regenerative solutions that we need to make this world livable for so many people. Capitalism is not working. And we can see it through, you know, zero hour contracts, through slavery in garment factories and things like this. It's, it's, it's clearly showing it's not working. Do I have the solutions for where to go next? No. Um, but I think this should be very much co-created by everyone in society. In so many decisions, it is the people who have the most to gain are the people who are making the way that we're going to play. They are, they are setting the rules and parameters. But if we bring everyone into co-creating where we can go forward, there will be no blind spots for oppression to hide in. And that is, uh, this is why, like, I, I personally don't really agree with capitalism or at least the way the system is right now because it's not working for so many people and more people than it is working for. You spoke about the garment industry. And recently, this year, we've seen a lot of influencers and a lot of bloggers start talking about, you know, sustainable fashion, minimalism, reusing your clothes, um, stopping fast fashion. I'd like to talk to you about what your take on that is and how our listeners can sort of reduce their consumption in their everyday lives. Yeah, I think it's really important to talk about fashion because especially as me, I've I love clothes. I love clothes. I love looking good. I love dressing up. <laughs> you know, and even like the idea of throwing clothes away is just like, I couldn't imagine. Like, I think it is just because I, I grew up in poverty. So what you had was what you had. Um, and the idea of throwing it away was just crazy. Um, and I've always been a mender. I've been a fixer. Um, my family, we we give each other <laughs> our clothes. Um, so I do think that we need a really different attitude on the way that we treat things um, in general. It's not about once, you know, you feel like it doesn't serve you anymore, you throw it away. It's saying, I care about the world and I care about this particular item. And this is kind of why, when it comes to fashion, it's about buying what you love. Because if you love it, you'll never allow it just to be thrown away. You'll really take care of it and nurture it. And when it's broken, you'll you'll try and fix it. Because I'm sure everyone's had one piece of clothing, whether it's a pair of trousers or or a purse that, you know, it started to rip and you're like, oh no, I'm not losing you. <laughs> you bring out that sewing kit and you repair it. Um, and it is this way of we can't just throw away things that we feel like aren't serving us currently. And this is like an actual behavior issue of where we can do it for other things in our world um, and we shouldn't do it for clothes either I think that we should be moving more towards sustainable ways but also just buying less and buying what's already existing in the world um, I think that that is where we have to start going towards but I understand that is a privilege that only few can afford sustainable clothes is very expensive and with you know vintage fashion I am a size 12 um, and I find it difficult to buy vintage clothes because of my size let alone if you're going up um, up in sizes as well so there is that kind of like intersection of who does you know vintage clothing or sustainable clothing work for and who it doesn't so I as like someone who can afford to pay for vintage clothes or pay for sustainable clothes, I do that because I know so many people don't have that option. Primark is their only lifeline and they should be able to do that till we create real systemic change that allows them to be able to break out of that cycle. So I think this is where it's like, if you have the privilege to be able to do it, you should do it. 
But if you don't, you should carry on because we need to fight for systemic change that brings everyone out of this. I think also, like with with the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, environmental activism coming to the forefront, we see so many companies pledging to stand up against racism and standing up for, you know, climate activism. Yet they don't seem to, um, you know, they don't have the receipts, if, if, if I could say it like that. And there's a complete lack of environmental standard based on like limitless growth. And I think there's this dis- disconnection from responsibility of the production process is such a difficult one. And I think I guess what you're what you're saying is like we do need this systemic change. We can talk about, you know, s- sustainability as much as we want. But until the system is sustainable, you know, nothing's really going to change. Exactly. And you and I, do, I shy away from the word sustainability in itself because are we mm. sustaining the bullshittery that's happening right now <laughs> is that our aim you know <laughs> um i i push for regenerative it is being better than sustaining what it is it, it's making it better and making it better for everyone from the lowest paid worker to the highest and that that i did some consultancy for quite a large drinks company a couple months ago and when they brought me in, they thought, I'm just going to be talking about environment, I'm going to be talking about plastics, plastic, plastics. But no, I'm not talking about just plastics. And I'm not talking about just the environment. I'm talking about the people who are in the supply chain. And we need ethics throughout. Um, and that that is how you get regeneration. That is how you solve the climate crisis is by solving all of the other issues as well. So how do we get Every single stage in, you know, the supply chain with these large, you know, multinational corporations, how do we get them to adhere to these um, standards? I think there's there's a short term and a long term kind of situation. Um, so the short term is we have to hold them to account and we have to let them know that we're watching. Let them know that we are trying to protect the people who are being made vulnerable and taken advantage of in this time. You know, and this could be things like, I know loads of people boycotted Oatly when Oatly started messing with the <laughs> some slightly questionable investors. And that is the, the short-term solution. But the long-term solution is that we basically say we need democracy and not a sham democracy like what's going on now, but real democracy that listens to the people and serves the people. Um, and that's where we start getting legislation that is putting people first, not business first. And once we start getting that, that's how we'll get the systemic side of the chain. So I do think there is that kind of like twin effect of we need to start doing stuff now so they know we're watching, they know they're being held to account, they know that they can't be slipping away um, and doing dodgy things, but also really focusing on governments and international bodies either doing their jobs or leaving us to do it, bring it back to direct democracy. Speaking of short-term changes, what do you believe the best way is for people to demand change? Is it is it going out in the streets and protesting? Is it voting for people in, in office? Um, is it, you know, spreading awareness on social media? How do you think people can enact the most change in their day-to-day lives? So I think it, it takes multiple different approaches. And I think this is the beauty. So like in some circles, you call it movements of movements, where there are so many different tactics going on. The bad guys can't hide. Um, and I know going and locking yourself onto something or gluing yourself onto a street is not everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> and I don't think it should be. And I don't think everyone um, would be drawn towards that. But I do think what needs to happen is people do as much as they feel comfortable doing. Um, and even 
moving into that space of discomfort because sometimes discomfort is very healthy and it's a way that we learn how to grow. Um, so I feel like people, if it is, you know, voting, if it is running for something, if it is going out on the streets and demanding for more, do it in as many different tactics as possible because we don't have time. Um, so that's where I think people should um, be moving towards. But for me, it is, it is going on the street and doing that real grassroots community work because I feel like, you know, everyone talks about you need the masses when it comes to decisions like this. But the masses are normally the people that have been turned sideways and have been left and abandoned by their government. We saw this during Brexit. The North said, we want to be heard. And they were. Were they going in the right direction? Personally, I don't think so. But they were. that was a cry for help, a cry to say, listen to our sorrow, listen to what we're going through and help us change that. You know, but what we need to do is within this time of where we're seeing people and polarised politics at best, um, to describe it, we, we need to bring people to the right side, to the side of saying, yes, times now are so hard, but we can do it so much better. And it doesn't have to be going toward hatred of others, toward othering people, towards the right, <laughs> the, the far right. It doesn't have to be going towards uh, the dangerous people in order to say, you know, we can create change together and we should be asking for a better future. So I think um, people should use whatever means that they feel comfortable using as long as it remains non-violent because, you know, uh, violent begets violence. <laughs> There was a quote in an interview that uh, Roger Hallam, one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, he said, some people may die. And he was referring to climate activists who were employing the techniques of civil disobedience. And, the, and obviously the use of force has been historically employed by elites to subdue people who are standing up for their rights. And I just wanted, maybe if you could just touch a little bit on the, on the issues of XR using civil disobedience and how this may have alienated some people who want to be involved in the environmental crisis but feel because they are a minority that they they don't want to employ the tactics of civil disobedience. I feel like I have quite an interesting take on this because personally, like I'm not gagging to be arrested, but more so if it's something that needs to happen, it needs to happen, um, you know. And I do think that XR hasn't done so well in explaining that the, the justice quote system <laughs> is not the same for everyone and not everyone gets justice um, and I think that needs to be echoed a bit louder but I do not think that civil disobedience is not the place for ethnic minorities to be because we were the ones who pioneered and created it civil disobedience I go back to the people who their lands were being stolen by the colonizers and they fought back um, we have Gandhi we have Martin Luther King the the most successful um, social movements that use civil disobedience have been spearheaded by people of colour. So I think that we should not forget our own radical histories within um, protest tactics. Um, but I do think that we need to talk a bit more about the difference ethnic minorities face within the justice system and the difference that people who are white and middle class face, because it is, it is a very different experience. So that's kind of that's my angle from it. I, and I understand there needs to be obviously like a level of care for people coming in. And it's all about being aware because I think that's one thing that I really respect XR for. They make you aware of the decisions that you're making and you're consenting to it. 
you know, I'm consenting to be at the forefront and hear and be a, a voice within this movement. I've consented to it and I'm fully aware of, you know, the issues that may occur. Um, and it is all about, it's all about the big C, the consent, <laughs> you know, because as long as, you know, if ethnic minorities are consenting to partake in civil disobedience and people from other marginalised groups as well, like working class people or even um, there's really quite some interesting cases around how the police discriminate against trans people at protests using their um, IDs that aren't reflections of themselves from before their transitions and saying they're holding fraudulent identification uh, <laughs> as a way to target trans people at protests. So these are the kind of things that we need to make sure that when people are partaking in our actions, in our protests, that they are fully aware that this may happen and making sure that we as a community protect them from it. Or if we can't protect them from it, make sure that we hold space for caring. And I think that's one thing we really do very well. Our action wellbeing is amazing people wait all night from <laughs> whatever hour till you come out to greet you with a hug to greet you with tea biscuits coffee cakes um, and then pass you on to legal team to be able to get legal advice for the um for the charge that you've been given so there is a lot of support that i feel like people don't see um behind extinction rebellion protests but that we should you know give the people who work so hard doing it a real big round of applause for protecting us Speaking of privilege and understanding privilege, a lot of the rhetoric around the Black Lives Matter movement protests were around white individuals having to use their bodies as a barrier and because of the privilege that white white bodies hold as opposed to black bodies, especially when it comes to the justice system and the police. Are you of a similar opinion or a similar view when it comes to, you know, civil disobedience that has to do with climate change? Or do you think that, you know, everyone should be of equal risk and put themselves out there? In theory, everyone should be at equal risk. But in practical, as we know, it's not an equal risk. Um, because if you're white and middle class on a very cushy salary, you get arrested and it's not a big deal. You continue with your life as though nothing's happened. If you are a young black male in this society and you get arrested, that will dramatically affect your life. And this is where it's not equal weighting. Personally, I feel that there is space for white people to say, I have privilege and I'm prepared to do more. In the same way that me living in the global north, I say, I have privilege just by living in the global north of where I, you know, in certain countries, like I think it's, oh, I can't remember factually, so I'm not going to say it. But in some countries, like within a, a week, you have 10 climate activists who are dead because of the work that they're doing. You know, I come from the Niger Delta region in Nigeria and climate activists die all the time, you know. And I know that obviously I am risking arrest with some of the things that I do, but am I going to die from it? No. And that is the privilege that only people in the global north majority of the time can afford. So this means I need to do even more with my privilege. And I think that white people should think about that. And I think especially when it comes to, you know, the core being of regenerative culture is actually um, the idea of self-care, which is the first step that we should take on our journey. Um, and self-care isn't just, you know, this very superficial face mask Monday kind of thing, but it is the inner work and saying, where do I fit within this society? What have I been given that I may not actually deserve because of my race, because of my gender, because of my class? And how can I use this as a tool 
to rip down the privilege that gave this to me, you know? And I think that is what people need to do, especially when you come into activism. You need to start saying, where do I sit? How have I needed the system that has actually allowed this problem to happen? And how can I break it down? I think you're really right to like emphasise how, you know, the climate crisis encompasses everyone, yet not everyone is faced with the same experiences of this climate breakdown. And I think you're also when you mentioned, you know, Indigenous people who are losing, you know, their fundamental rights to like air, water, food, land, they are being shot and, you know, they are being faced with intimidation and legal harassment. I know in Brazil there were like over 200 activists killed last year for defending their their basic human rights. And I think when I refer to this idea that people, you know, when Roger Hallam says people may die, you know, there's an emphasis on the future. And I think for me, it makes me question if the rhetoric is being lost, you know, the, the discourse of these people who are being murdered now, you know, this year, last year, you know, does it ignore that, you know, focusing on the future too much? And I think also in like Western Western discourse about the climate crisis it's a lot about the future this apocalyptic future you know the idea that soon there's going to be shortages of food shortages of land but is that not already happening you know and is is it sort of dangerous to focus on the future too much yeah I think we need to honestly all of my actions are to try and stop the present as soon as possible I, I think about the future in a way of hope, grasping onto hope to make me be able to do this work every day. But it is very much focusing on the now. Um, a lot of my personal, like what personally drives me on a day to day is is meeting these communities who are at risk and who are the ones that are fighting um, on the front line. I've met people from indigenous um, communities in the Amazon and hearing their stories of waking up to fires engulfing their home, their ancestral land, makes me fucking angry. And it makes me want to do something. I do think there is a place to say, what would the future look like since we need to think ahead, but we also need to think about what's happening now, definitely. And I don't, you know, personally, I see 1.5, but what does 1.5 mean to so much of the world? Um, to the West, it might be okay and a good starting place. But for a lot of smaller islands, it's it's the end of their existence as they know it. Um, and this is not fair. And I do think that we need to be halting climate change and the effects of climate change as soon as possible. I don't think we should be waiting till 2030 to figure out what's going on. Or even as the British government thinks 2050 is a, is a good enough target. <laughs> It's ridiculous. <laughs> so I do think that we need to be doing as much as we can right now because we need to preserve what's left of um, the world as we know it. Because, you know, as you know, tipping points, tipping points are the scariest thing because it could have already happened, but we won't even be aware of it. And do we have to wait for that tipping point to happen to care, to say, oh, God, look at what's happening and it's it's not that far away and even in the UK it's not that far away we're seeing areas of the UK being flooded like never before you know I um went to a Thames Estuary uh, conference and they basically said how by 2030 the majority of coastal land in the UK will be lost um the town that I went to boarding school in in Skegness would be lost it will be gone it won't exist anymore the memories that we've had there, the the land, 
it will be gone. This is in our own country. So we don't have to look far for something that's going to happen very soon. And we shouldn't have to wait for things to go wrong to start doing something. And do you think, do you think that, you know, we've made enough, we clearly haven't made enough change, but do you think we're heading in the right direction? Do you think this year was a turning point? Do you think, you know, are you hopeful for the future? I feel like this year could be a turning point. I don't think I've seen enough turning to call it one. <laughs> but I think it could be. There is so much, so much prospect in what's happening now, you know. Um, within this year, we've had, we've even last year, to be honest, I remember the beginning of this year, I said it would be the year of change. But boy, did I know. <laughs> I couldn't predict this change. <laughs> You know, as Ashton was saying before, we saw things that we thought were impossible. We thought halting the economy just at a standstill would be impossible. But they did it. You know, we saw universal basic income coming in lots of countries. We saw countries in Europe starting to say, how can we look into regenerative economics? How can we look into donut theories? How can we start moving more towards um, creating a, a recovery plan that includes the climate and includes caring for people? This is possible. Don't let them tell us that it's not. Go back to the fundamentals of democracy. They are meant to be representing us and our views. And if they're no longer doing that, we need to tell them where to go and sit. You know, and this is where it comes to. This is the time for creating change. There is no other time that we can do this. It is urgent and it's needed to happen as soon as possible. Um, Days, this is more of a, I guess, a personal question. You, you mentioned that Extinction Rebellion, you know, changed your life. I'd like to ask you, so without Extinction Rebellion, do you think you would be as active with, you know, fighting against climate change and the climate crisis? Who is Days without Extinction Rebellion? Well, I don't know. I've, I've, do I think I would have come into climate in the way that I did? I don't think so, in all honesty. Um, I think I always had a love for nature, but very much as like an average teenager, like, you know, I like nature, I recycle. That was my thing <laughs> before Extinction Rebellion. Um, and I do think um, growing up, my mum always said, our role in life is to make the world better for the future generation. And that was what I was brought up on pre-Extinction Rebellion. It was always to make the world a better place. And that was our role as humans being here. Um, so I do think I would have done something um, very radical and pushing. I think even my first job was at Amnesty International and I looked for anything that was opening up because I knew I wanted to protect people. I knew I wanted to protect the earth um, and what sustains us. So I do think there would have been a place, but I do, I do owe it to Extinction Rebellion for really taking me into a place of really seeing the world for what it is. I do think before XR, I was, I was quite naive. I thought that everyone was here doing the same thing, trying to make the world better for everyone. But the reality is that's not true. There are people who are here for themselves. And I think that was the rude awakening that XR gave me. But I think even now, like, you know, my involvement in XR over the past couple months have actually um, softened. And I still do think that there is 
still radicalness that burns inside of me to make this place a better place for everyone. Um, and I think this will proceed whether XR exists or not. And there is a lot of stuff coming <laughs> that has nothing to do with XR, but it's going to hopefully shake waves and make things change. So, um, yeah, I think I am who I am partly because of XR, but partly because I've been raised by some really amazing, strong black women in my life who have faced depression and who have said fuck that that story that you tell black people that they're going to be poor and uneducated is not the story that my children or my generations are going to tell um so I'm very lucky to have very strong roots with really amazing women amazing will we be seeing you run again in the future well I don't like politics (laughs) Well, I don't, I like the idea of politics. I don't read about politics. I don't like being in politics. I feel that through that run, it showed me how flawed this system really is. And there is no recouping this. We need to break down this system and we need to really put in place like true elements of democracy. Hence why I call this a sham democracy because it is. Um, So we really need to start thinking very radically and start moving towards what we've been told is impossible. We need to start saying, how can we bring citizens' assemblies to people? I think citizens' assemblies is a great idea. And especially when you see the statistics around um, how many white people are going to be represented in the citizens' assembly when it's a global one, <laughs> there's going to be so many more indigenous people who are going to have their voices in. There's going to be women. There's going to be every sector of society that's been marginalized are going to step up because their voice is going to be heard equally. Um, so that's my hope to really reform the system to the point of where we'll look back and say, what were we doing with Boris Johnson? How were we playing this game with him? <laughs> Great. And I think that's a that's a good place to sort of end our discussion. Before we conclude, I'd love to ask you what one main core point would you like our listeners to sort of get out of this discussion that we've had today? You don't understand how much power someone holds. Um, I was lucky enough, obviously, as I mentioned before, to have my first job in Amnesty International. And I was told about a story um, from a victim of torture who he, he said before they used to torture him in his prison. And then Amnesty called upon its people to write letters to him, to tell him we are here and we are watching. He started receiving thousands of letters, thousands of letters. And through that, it saved his life because they stopped touching him because they knew people were seeing what they were doing and people knew and cared for him. And that's the power of something that may feel so small and so insignificant. It takes you 20 minutes to write a letter, but if all of us do it together, it will create the wave that will stop what's happening. Um, And I think that's, I always hold that um, story so closely because especially when you're seeing the real life effects of what, you know, you're writing a letter or you standing up for change or you going on the streets can can really do. That's what I would ask people to do. Just just do it. And if you can do bigger, go big too. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a really powerful an ending. But I, I just wanted to, there's a quote I wanted to read out. Um, it's, it's Sonia Rennie T- Taylor, and it's been like circulating on the internet. Um, and I think it sums up what we've been talking about today. And it goes, we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal, other than we normalised greed, inequity, mm-hmm. exhaustion, depletion, extraction. 
We should not return, my friend. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all humanity and nature. That's really beautiful. It was so nice to chat with you and get your view um, as such a young climate activist. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Days, and thank you for all of the work that you do and for being such an inspiring figure for so many others who I'm sure, after listening to our discussion today, will definitely make changes towards fighting against the climate crisis. Um, And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I look forward to seeing everything that you will do in the future, and I'm sure it will be remarkable things. That was it for us today. This was Declarations. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast streaming service. I'm your host. My name is Muna Gassim, and we were joined today by the wonderful Dezagaji and our panelist, Ashling Williams. Thank you very much. <laughs>